when I was first looking for this in architecture school, I said, what I'm looking for is some sort of spiritually based ecological land use planning, site planning, and architecture something, right? And when I, 10 years after architecture school, when I discovered the word geomancy, it's like, oh, that might be it. Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of Adventures in Dowsing with me, Graham Gardner. This is show number 49. Well, I hope you've been having a great summer. I'm just recently returned from the American Society of Dowsers West Coast Conference in Santa Cruz, California where I was a guest speaker and presented two talks and ran a full-day workshop entitled Seven Steps to Sacred Space after the main conference. Uh, The West Coast Convention is a much more relaxed and informal affair than the the national ASD one, and this one runs only every second year. And As I've been presenting at the ASD one for the last three years, I decided this year that uh, I was going to make it out to California instead. Um, it's quite an expensive business getting out to the States anyway, and financially I just couldn't afford to uh, attend both conventions. So it was great to meet many friends there, both old and new, and hopefully I can manage to attend the next one in a couple of years' time. Uh, if you'd like to see something of what we got up to and see me wearing a kilt, I've uploaded a few videos from my workshop onto my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash westerngeomancy. So uh, you can go and have a laugh at my bare Scottish legs there. Anyway, one of the friends who was presenting at the conference was Richard Feather Anderson. Feather is a well-known architect and geomancer from the Bay Area and runs the American School of Geomancy. He's been a major influence on the geomancy scene in the United States for many years and he's a pretty regular attendee at this conference. So one morning I managed to grab a quiet moment with Feather and we both sat down to uh, talk about his work and the American geomancy scene. Now just a little caveat here that the uh, sound quality on this recording is not my best I'm afraid because I'd forgotten to switch off my mobile phone and it interfered with the recorder somewhat. Uh, I've done my best to clean it up but it is still a little bit warbly in places so apologies for that. Anyway, here's Feather. Well, I'm a geomancer. That's the the hat I wear in the world <laughs> or the uh, the way the world told me who I am and what I'm here to do. <laughs> and uh, gosh, how I got there. I, you know, when people often ask me, how did you um, become a geomancer or learn it or whatever, or when did you start or whatever, and I say, well, I was born into it. And that still sounds like the most accurate way to say it. Because my earliest memory is my dad taking me for a walks into the woods. And I remember distinctly, you know, specific events, like we'd be walking down towards the closest stream. And so it's like, and, and what that's about is my watershed consciousness and learning bioregionalism, which for me is an important part of geomancy. And so that started when I was two and a half or three years old, being introduced to the stream that we were in the watershed we were living in. And it was at the mouth of that stream 
where it came into the main river. This is all taking place in West Virginia. Hmm. Can I just back you up a second there? Bioregionalism, you say? Bioregionalism. So it's this... Bioregionalism? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 It's the... Well, let's back up even further and define GMSC. (laughs) (laughs) That could take a while. (laughs) Well, no, I I came to a... uh, I think... You know, comparing with other colleagues, I think I have the broadest explanation or okay. definition of what it is, concept of what it is. It's the sum total of all humanity's knowledge about how to live sustainably and in harmony with Mother Earth. Hmm. Okay. There you go. And before that, I was just calling it the mother of the natural sciences. And yeah. I think that was somebody else's definition. But it was like, you know, it's it includes geology and geography and meteorology and astronomy and astrology and geometry and sacred geometry and architecture and ecology and, you know, all the natural sciences. In other words, that's all the stuff about understanding the earth. Where are we living and how can we live wisely and in harmony and which is sustainability is the word that we use today for all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, so when I was first looking for this in architecture school, I said, what I'm looking for is some sort of spiritually based ecological land use planning, site planning and architecture something. Right. And when I, 10 years after architecture school, when I discovered the word geomancy, it's like, oh, that might be it. <laughs> so a lot of people think of geomancy as the study of earth energies at ancient sites. Well, that's Stone Age geomancy, yes. But, you know, I'm in another century, another millennium. Yeah. And so I'm more interested in spiritually based metaphysical, ecological land use planning and building and architecture and stuff. How do we... So does that overlap into the, the permaculture scene for you? Yeah. Well, yeah. permaculture for me is a modern reinvention of some of the pieces of geomancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, and that, that, that kind of perspective is what me, got me to that really broad definition. It's because I kept seeing that, and here we come back to bioregionalism, you know, the, the bioregionalism, per, permaculture, uh, Steiner's, uh, biodynamic gardening, you know, agriculture. I mean, all those things are talking about things that, oh, that's what I'm discovering the world of geomancy is all about. So bioregionalism is this consciousness of the land in terms of its natural units. You know, not the political boundaries that are very arbitrary, but this, like I grew up in West Virginia, it's the, I think, the only state in the U.S., that actually has boundaries that are rivers and mountains rather than just straight lines that go north, south, east, west that are just plopped arbitrary onto the land. But there, the land is so defined by the steep mountains and the deep hollows, you know, that you can't ignore it. Sure. So I grew up with a whole culture that was already talking by regionalism. They're always talking about, I mean, they are the heart of Appalachia. That's their consciousness of their relationship to that place or what the quality of that place is, right? <clears throat> so, you know, other places, it's like Georgia was uh, established for convicts from England and yada, yada, you know? So it's 
those are human applied ideas to the land. But in West Virginia, who we are comes from the quality, the energy of the land, the spirit of the land. Mm-hmm. Right. So I grew up in all that kind of stuff. So that's why I say I was born into geomancy because it was just inculcated in the culture that I grew up in. And people talked in terms of knowing the land like the back of your hand. You know? and, and I remember hearing a story of somebody uh, from outside coming in and was uh, about to uh, you know, settle someplace and was about to build a cabin somewhere in this spot, in this hollow. And um, uh, by the way, to, for your British... Uh, people a hollow or a holler as we say it in west virginia <laughs> is a steep valley yeah and it's there are so many steep valleys there that there are people that never have really moved from the area where they were born because it's so difficult to get up out of that hollow over the steep hills and the ridges of the mountains hmm. so there are all these very isolated little pockets okay which i think also leads to this bioregional um perspective on things they're very aware of what's going on in their hollow in their watershed in their drainage area okay? so bioregionalism is under relating to the land in terms of the areas that are natural regions biological regions where and one of the easiest ways to know that <clears throat> is just follow the water yeah and so you go from the ridges where the water where the watershed break is where the divide is and the water flows that way to the atlantic and the water on this side flows down to the ohio and the mississippi and out into the gulf of mexico you know so we're in this drainage area and those people over there on the other side of the ridge they're in another drainage area you know and so i i grew up from the whole time I was in West Virginia, from zero to 21 years, I lived pretty much on that same creek when I was that first memory of that going to Joplin Hollow, to the mouth of it, of um, that creek. Um, and then when I was four, I think, we moved about halfway up that watershed. And then when I was seven, we moved up near the headwaters. So your life is really defined by the landscape you're living in. Yeah. Yeah. And and by that particular part of the landscape which the landscape defines itself for you know it's mm. not it's not a human imprint on it. Yeah. And uh you know even the even the little um community that we created was called Weberwood and that was the name of the people who owned the dairy farm that sold half the farm to us to create this community for 100 families. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we're taking, we were taking the name of the place from, you know, not calling it St. George's Wood or something. Yeah. <clears throat> we were uh, taking the name of the people who had been the caretakers, the stewards of this land and, and the woods, you know, it yeah. was just, it was pasture and woods. <laughs> yeah. It's great that that, uh, you know, that whole etymology thing is still so present in the landscape here. Yeah. You know, whereas, like, you know, the rest of the world in Europe, it's, it's so ancient. People have forgotten the meaning of the names, although, you know, they probably arose in the same kind of manner. Well, they did. And yeah. I, well, I actually find that, I mean, you have books of place names in, in yeah. the British Isles, and yeah. we don't here. And, uh, you know, I, the, I have a friend, colleague in Sonoma County, north of San Francisco, where I lived for 20 years, 
and he created a book on the place names, you know, but most of the place names here are not related to, they don't really indicate or give you a sense for the spirit of the landscape. So mm. we have like Mount Diablo, but the natives had a different name for it. Or mm. um, Mount Tamalpais is a little bit closer because it means Mountain of the Bay or Bay Mountain. And when I did my or regional geomancy analysis of the Bay Area, uh, which is an ongoing thing, <clears throat> I should say, did in present tense, <laughs> as, I, as I've been doing that for the last 40 years. <laughs> uh, it, when I got to, when I started to get more of a sense of that land, that mountain's own energy and spirit and place in the world, in the, in the regional world, um, it, I came to think of it as the, as the central mountain of the Bay Area. Other people were calling it the Mountain of the West. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, no, the west of the Bay Area is out in the ocean. There's a, the ocean is very, the, it's very shallow for about 40 miles out. And then there's a bank called Cordell Bank, and it's like a cliff under the ocean. And that's where the whales come by and feed because that's where all of the, the, the water from the, uh, streams and rivers up in the Sierras flows all the way down through the Central Valley, through the Bay Area, out into the ocean. <clears throat> and when, and it, 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 all of that water is carrying all these rich nutrients from all the erosion, from the, the water running through the granite and everything, right? So there are all these minerals. And when the, that stream freshwater gets out there 40 miles, the salinity changes and the depth of the ocean changes suddenly and all the nutrients get dropped right there. And that feeds the krill that feeds the whales. And that's why we have this whale and everything else, you know, migration thing happening out there. So, and there are, there's a bunch of islands out there, the Farallon Islands that are the high point of that cliff ridge edge <laughs> and mountains that are under the water now. But there's a few that poke up. Well, as I got more of a bioregional, regional geomancy kind of sense of the Bay Area, it's like the Bay Area is this land of the edge of land and water, and the water is part of the region because all this fresh water from the Sierra is making its way 40 miles out there. Yeah. So that's really the edge of the land, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's land... It's the soil and the minerals that are in being carried by the water, but it's still part of the land. And then I found out that you go back in geological history and find out that when during the ice ages, that wasn't ocean at all. And so that, mm. that was a mountain range and yeah. it was the edge. And it's just a, you know. Yeah. I think that's an important concept because people are so uh, land centric now because, you know, obviously we live on it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, the ancients didn't have the highways and roads and stuff, and certainly in the British Isles, mm-hmm. the water was the main transport. You know? People were in boats going up and down the coast. Yeah. Right. So, and yeah, and up the river. So that yeah. gives you a watershed consciousness. Yeah. yeah. And so, in, yeah, all the indigenous peoples all were living in a bioregional kind of perspective. Mm. And, uh, so anyway, it was a, that was, that, that whole concept of bioregionalism was being developed in the 70s when I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and I got to meet Peter Berg and the people that developed that whole concept. So it was a 
big influence. It was another aha. This is part of what I'm looking for for this spiritual, metaphysical, ecologically based way of relating to the land. And then how do we find the best place for our villages and our homes and our churches and our everything? You know, which yeah. is another way, by the way, of defining geomancy. Of yeah. course, yeah. that it's the art of finding the right place for all human activities. Yeah. So when did you uh, formally declare yourself a geomancer? Oh, well, that was... Training training yeah, yeah, well, that that's, that's a British house story, so that's a good question. Yeah, well, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, 1985 mm-hmm. is one of the critical dates, uh, um, and 1974 is the other one. So uh, that development of that consciousness was between 74 and 85. Um so let's start with the, the, well, I can start at either end, but <laughs> the, the 74 period was I met, uh, two people, a man and a woman who were uh, a couple who were offering a training in one of the, the shamanic indigenous Wiccan traditions of Ireland, uh, called fairy tradition. And, <clears throat> it was very eclectic, partly because the tradition was so segmented and splintered and, you know, pieces forgotten and stuff, that they went looking for the pieces that they sensed were missing. Yeah. And, you know, they went to Peruvian shamanism and Hawaiian Huna and Sun Bear, who was a Chippewa medicine person in America here. Um, and the, and the, the Irish, Celtic, pre-Celtic mythology and lore and all that stuff and a whole bunch of energy work. And um, uh, in that, that studying with those people was where I first heard the word geomancy. Hmm. And so that very long, cumbersome, oh, I'm looking for this spiritually based metaphysical, ecological site planning and architecture living in harmony with nature thing. <laughs> to, oh gosh, there's a single word for that, geomancy. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, I have a very similar experience. Yeah. Oh, there's this coat hook. I can hang all my coats on. <laughs> and it's called geomancy. Yeah. 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 So it was lovely to have uh, that word. I think that was probably about 1976. It took about two mm-hmm. years of studying with him. He was a Socratic-style teacher. So he would sit there, we'd form a circle, do a little chanting energy work, and then he says, are there any questions? <laughs> Fortunately, there were always questions. I'm assuming that if there weren't, we'd keep sitting there. Because <laughs> he didn't come in with a plan and a curriculum and everything. Mm. <laughs> he knew what we needed to know to have sort of the whole story and the whole understanding and be practitioners of sensing the earth and energy healing, hands-on healing work and all this kind of stuff and knowing ourselves and, you know, all that. But it was basically just Socratic sit there and ask answer the questions. Anyway, uh, so after a couple of years, he says, hmm, I've been thinking about the questions you've been asking. <laughs> and I, I see there's kind of a thread here. I, you know, I think what you're looking for is this thing called geomancy. And I don't know much about it other than the fact that I think that's what it's called. So I ran off to the dictionary at University of California, and it said it was a divination technique where you threw bits of earth, hence the geo part, onto the ground and you divine, which is the mancy part, 
<clears throat> the sort of the current situation, then you can know the future. So it was kind of an oracle technique. And I found some books, and it was a tradition from Africa. It was called Geomancy, but spelled I-E on the end because it was a French colony part of Africa or something that this was coming from. And I thought, uh, that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> so I kept looking. And then fortunately... Oh, probably about 78 and 79, Nigel Pinnock, and um, started writing about the Western tradition and publishing stuff, little, little chap books. And uh, somebody named E.J. Itell uh, had written a book in 1878 and it got republished in 1978, something like that. And uh, he was basically dissing feng shui, but describing it very accurately. Mm-hmm. And then saying... This is a crazy idea, you know. We're gonna we're gonna modernize these Chinese by bringing in our thoughts. You know, they believe that you it's not okay to have the roads go straight to get quickly from place to place. You have to go around the toes of the dragon. They say of these mountains. What a silly idea! <laughs> and he says, "Oh, okay. It's important to not cut the toes of the dragon." Thank you, Tidal. <laughs> So you take everything he said and, you know, take yeah. away his his uh, projection of his own yeah. <laughs> perspective on it, and there was some good information. So it was very difficult to get information in mm. the 70s. Yeah. And every time, uh, I remember the first time I found um, a, a definite, there was two paragraphs in um, a, a, another architect who I later made, became friends with. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but he had Tom Bender. Tom Bender had a little book he called The Environmental Design Primer, and he was doing the same thing I was doing. He was ahead of me, <clears throat> farther along, of formulating this new ecologically-based architecture approach or something. And he had a couple paragraphs. And it was just like, you know, it was like you're coming off the desert and you're starving and you're thirsty and there's, you find this first morsel of this thing you're looking for. Mm. And it was just, it was a treasure to find those two paragraphs on geomancy. <laughs> <laughs> so then fast forward and I, I ran into in 79, there was a guy named Danon Perry, who's no longer with us. And he started the Earth Stewards Network and he started one of the first uh, citizen diplomacy things between people in the U.S. and Russia and then Northern Ireland, Belfast, and then Israel, and Palestinians. And he came up with this idea of healing those conflicts by having the kids of those two cultures plant trees. Hmm. <laughs> and he did that. So the Earth Stewards Network, I think, may still be doing that that project and, hmm. and uh, bringing back desert areas that we've, you know, slashed and burned into desert and bringing them back by planting trees again yeah. and having kids who are, whose parents are fighting each other work together. Brilliant. So he, he started a program called the Peaceful Warrior. Anyway, he was carrying pieces of Celtic geomancy. And he had moved, and, and he was working with megaliths. And he had been originally trained as a physicist who was part of the team that discovered the piezoelectric effect that gives us computers. Uh-huh. But he was very much like me in saying, this isn't enough, I'm looking for something else, went off and became a Ph.D. psychologist and taught at the University of California, Berkeley, 
and then said, hmm, that's not enough either. So now I've got the physics and the sort of psychological, but where's the metaphysical? And he went off and discovered the Celtic <clears throat> indigenous lore, mm-hmm. including the geomancy. And so he had, he and his community had moved a big megalithic stone into the center of their little meadow of their intentional community. And they found that, I mean, they had rollers. They were doing the, yeah. you know, the yeah. physical way of moving it. And, uh, but what they discovered was that the rollers weren't enough and the ropes and stuff, and it wouldn't budge. But when they chanted together, then the stone would move. And then when they were all amazed that the stone moved because they were chanted, and then they went, oh, wow. <laughs> stone stopped again <laughs> and they had to get back into that state of consciousness yeah. to get the stone to move so he was one of the first people that really opened me up to the possibility of what you can do with consciousness yeah yeah and that physical matter can be changed by consciousness so that was a really big thing so i had the the energy working stuff i had the how to communicate with tree spirits and other you know interspecies communication stuff from the first people a couple of very traditional folks and I had uh, the beginnings. It's basically what I got from them. All that energy work is what I now call the core practices of Western geomancy. At least the way that I'm practicing it. So that was a great gift. And then I got all this other stuff with working with quartz crystals and um, with the physicist who worked with the piezoelectric effect. And then I got the um, a whole bunch of Celtic geomancy stuff in there and uh, tuning into the seasons. Um, he wrote a book on that, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And then the next thing that happened, I also got turned on to labyrinths in there. Jill Purse's Mystic Spiral mm-hmm. got me back into the interest of labyrinths, which I'd had as a, in elementary school, grade school, uh, probably 10 or 11, 12 years old or something or other. When I was bored in junior high, I would make mazes. And Me too. Yeah, a lot of us, you know, Alex as well. Yeah. Uh, so that they, you know, these things keep coming back. My life feels to me like a spiral. If I map out the, mm-hmm. the plan of my life, it's not a linear progression. It's yeah. the spiral, and I keep coming back to things that I was interested in at three years old and ten years old and fourteen and blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I get that a lot as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's why I'm here today. Yeah, it's all those things I learned. They're all coming together. Yeah. yeah. I mean all the the geopathic stress reduction and the working with the trees, the and the French coils and all the stuff I'm in now, I learned that in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. And then I went off somewhere else and then a, another somewhere, you know, and I came back to architecture and went back into architectural design about 1996, I think it was, somewhere in there. And so I've been doing conceptual design for people to bring in. When they want feng shui, earth energy, sacred geometry, all that, creating a harmonious place to live and put it in the right place and the right shape to fit into the landscape, you know, I'm very interested. Yeah. But the other mundane stuff, no interest in drop that out but mm. yeah so that that so that's another one of those spiral arcs that came back around to <laughs> well it's like the labyrinth you know <laughs> yeah 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 paths. hello everybody it's me greg proops the smartest man in the world and we're backstage at the smartest man in the world podcast right here right now and you're listening to adventures in dowsing from the british society of dowsers and i feel so good about it
Awesome. Now let's have a look at the dowsing news. Uh, the big event coming up, of course, is the British Society of Dowsers National Conference, and that's at the 23rd to the 25th of September, and it's being held at Newport Pagnell, uh, which is kind of near Milton Keynes, if you know uh, your, your geography at all. Uh, they have a very nice conference centre, apparently. And uh, speakers this year are Dr Jude Caravan, Dr Serena Roney dougal Professor Dietzmar Himes, Ros Briaga, Sandy McKenzie and Danu Fox. And of course there's the usual selection of workshops. Uh, find out more details on that one at BritishDowsers.org And for me, I'm uh, running a BSD approved Earth Energies Level 4 course, also called Creating Temple Space Part 1 and that's going to be on the 10th and 11th of September at Turfichen which is a lovely little village in central Scotland between Bathgate and Linlithgow. And there's a very special workshop coming up on the 1st and 2nd of October called Seeing the Unseen with Dowsing and the Labyrinth, which I am co-hosting with International Labyrinth Facilitator Tony Christie from Cork in Ireland. And we're going to be running this at Dunure down on the Ayrshire coast, where there is a spectacular outdoor labyrinth on the cliffs next to Dunure Castle. So this is going to be a very special weekend indeed. And you can find out more details about my courses on my website, westerngeomancy.org slash events. And now we have a couple of letters. Uh, Daryl is an old friend of the show, and he's been in touch several times. And he writes, First of all, I've got to say how much I enjoy the podcasts. It's been a while since I replayed them, but I recently took on a mundane painting job, which turned out to be the perfect quiet time to replay them, and also a nice surprise to find several new ones. I always find them extremely interesting with plenty of food for thought. Keep up the great work, mate, and very well done. Well, thanks, Daryl. That's very kind of you. He continues. Now, here's my other reason for getting in touch. I was wondering if you could maybe help me. While living in New Zealand, I took your advice and actively sought out a local club. Wish I had done that years ago. I was getting taught by an old Italian gent called Albino Gola. But due to my young son's ill health, we have moved to a drier climate in Perth, Australia. I have exhausted all avenues in trying to find like-minded folk or a local dowsing club. I even got in touch with Alana Moore, but still seem to have drawn a blank. So I was wondering, would you know of anyone that might like to form a club or get in touch or meet up occasionally? I can't be the only one here, surely. Well, I'm sure you're not, Daryl, but let's ask the listeners. Uh, Is there anyone in the Perth, Western Australia area who would be interested in getting together and forming a local dowsing group? Or is there one there already that we don't know about? Uh, Please do get in touch. Email me at podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com and I'll pass on your details to Daryl. And we had another letter from Thierry Sutter who writes, My wife Louise and I have greatly enjoyed listening to masses of your BSD podcasts during our summer holidays in Spain this July. And we wanted to thank you for the effort of making all these recordings available via iTunes. Magically, we fell on so many dolmens in Catalonia and southern France without knowing there were so many. They must have been sending us a message. Uh, We both live in Paris and are thinking of joining the BSD. Is there a joint overseas membership as well? We will look at the newsletters with great interest, as there seem to be so many outings and conferences that we may like to attend. We have trained in dowsing in Switzerland and France, where it is called geobiology, but you have not seen an equivalent dowsing society here. Uh, well, Thierry, the world's oldest dowsing society is Les Amis de la Radiesthésie, 
which was formed in 1931, and they're in Paris, so I would suggest that you look them up. There's certainly a great and long-established dowsing shop there, uh, La Maison de la Radisthésie, and that's also well worth a visit, as they have a fantastic collection of tools. Uh, the BSD doesn't currently have a joint overseas membership rate, although there is a standard international rate, but I'm sure they'd be happy to uh, make you an offer if you ask them nicely. Uh, email the office at info at You can get a standard international membership for £55, or you could perhaps consider a digital membership for £40. Uh, do keep in touch and let us know how you get on. And uh, thanks for those letters. It's always nice to hear from the listeners. So uh, if you want to get in touch, the email address is podcast at adventuresindowsing.com. And now, back to our talk with Feller. Yeah. Well, you said this was a significant anniversary for Labyrinth. Yes, yeah? this was the 30th um, uh, anniversary of when I first brought the Labyrinths uh, to the West Coast Conference, which... Turns out Robert Ferry is writing, rewriting, revising, expanding his book on the uh, Labyrinth Revival. Mm -hmm. the thing he put out maybe 20 years ago. And uh, and so he's been getting information from me and Sig Palonegren and Jeff Sayworth and all the you know actors and movers. And Jeff's the main historian. And he's trying to get an accurate picture of it. And it turns out, and this was just last year, I realized this, when I brought the Labyrinths here, to the conference, I was really bringing them to America. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really realize that until Robert started to really collect the, the whole story in more detail. So in 1986, <clears throat> I put the labyrinth in here. Um, of course, it was just a temporary one, and that was in July. In May, Nigel Pennick had put a stone labyrinth in at Ojai Foundation, Southern California. Uh, I don't know if that's still there. And then later in the summer, Sig Lonegren put his little turf maze on his front lawn in Greensboro, Vermont. So the Ojai one was, I mean, the, the one here was really the one open to the public, mm -hmm. although it was temporary. And then I continued that up until 1989. And the, we, I also, during those four years, was running a research project using dowsing to explore what are the effects of walking labyrinths. And I was really interested in what the beneficials were, and I didn't find any detrimentals. So it actually turned out that all the effects were beneficial. And we charted that by just dowsing people, uh, dowsing their energy fields or auras, um, before walking the labyrinth and then after and saw, and this was an idea that Sig gave me. He says, why don't you check this out? I found that, oh, and that goes back to our 1985. Let's pull that back in before we go any further. So the 1985 is when I really took on becoming a geomancer. And that was as a result of American Society Dowser, Sig Lonergan put this thing together <clears throat> with the friends that he had made in the British Isles. The Dragon Project, particularly, and Paul Devereaux and Jamie George from uh, Gothic, Gothic Image, Image and Glastonbury, and uh, and Jamie was running Gothic Image tours at the time, and um, his wife was running the bookstore, <clears throat> and so thought that was a fabulous idea um, to go over there and have two weeks to work with John Michelle and Paul Devereaux and John Steele and the Dragon Project people, and it was just an amazing collection. I looked at the list. Everybody except Nigel Pinnock was on it. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, and Anthony Roberts. Uh, there were a couple people I knew about who weren't, but there were like 14 or 18 of all the people I would ever want to study with. <laughs> all collected for us <laughs> conveniently <laughs> in a two-week period, going to sites all over southern England and up into Wales and up into the Presley Mountains. Mm. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't not go to this. Yeah. Right. So um, Nicholas Fink, who's part of the conference here, and he and I were program directors at that time of this of the West Coast Conference. And uh, we decided to, we were doing a lot of dowsing stuff together, <clears throat> teaching classes together. And we thought, oh, ha, <laughs> this is a no-brainer, let's go. And so we signed up and went for that. So at the, and that and it was fabulous, going around and learning what they've been doing since about 1970, exploring what are the effects of all these stone circles and passage mounds and stuff and looking, dowsing the earth energies and, lots of scientific instruments and Geiger counters and whatnot to figure out everything they could about all the strange things going on at these places. Yeah. And uh, so at the end of that, um, t- towards the end, or as I met these, you know, John Michelle and John Steele and Paul Debra and all these people, they kept relating to me as a partner. You know, as one of them, and you know, and they would say, you, you know, you're one of us. And finally, at the, towards the end of the trip, a collection of them, it was almost like, it felt like, kind of like a knighting ceremony. <laughs> Sir Richard, you're one of us geomancers. And then it felt like they gave me a swift boot in the butt and told me to go home and start teaching. You're one of us. You know just as much as we do. Get back there and start teaching in America because other than saying that there's nobody else in America doing this. Yeah. Knows what they're talking about or knows to talk about it at all. <laughs> knows of the subject. So I went back and I remember I was sitting on the back of the bus, the tour bus with Sig and we were formulating uh, the plan. <laughs> he was like helping me with a, what am I going to call it? You know, so we came up with this term, the West Coast Institute of Sacred Ecology, which had a lovely acronym of WISE, and then I could have the EarthWise newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we put that thing together. I had a geomantic study group. I had uh, um, a geomantic uh, design group. We collected, I started teaching classes. And then as architects, since I was an architect, I was, I was attracting landscapers and architects and landscape architects and interior designers and site and urban planners and stuff. And by the time I took to my classes and by the time I had about 20 of them who had come to classes, I called them all up and say, let's convene a support group because it's time for us to start offering GMANCY as part of our design services. And how are we going to do that? So we met for about a year figuring out what words to use because nobody is going to hire us if we say geomancy. Yeah. So what are we going to call this thing? And everybody came up with different stuff, and we helped each other write our brochures and business cards and what how we were going to call this. And somebody called it Sign with Spirit, and somebody else called it something else, and it was really neat. And then, so we got, that was our first year. Anyway, so, the, you know, it was part of my process also of getting clear about, okay, I'm calling myself a geomancer. What does that mean? How am I going to describe this to people? And I only want to attract clients. I, very early on, <clears throat> I 
I only wanted to, I was clear, I only wanted to attract clients who were interested in my special weird collection of skills and perspectives and gifts and stuff, right? I, I, don't, I don't want to do shopping malls anymore or high-rise office buildings or airports. That's what I was doing before in architecture. And uh, uh, so it was very clear about that. And everybody was going through that process. And we were helping each other. After a year, we were done with that, and we were ready now to test to see if we knew what we were talking about <laughs> or how much we knew and didn't know. <laughs> and we wanted to take on a project. So we looked for and we found a, a program project to, to volunteer for. And it turns out to be, I think, the first peace garden in the world. Uh-huh. And it was in Sebastopol. There were two people. There was a woman, I think, in the East Coast or something who sort of came up with the idea. And then there was this other guy who was a part of that <clears throat> who I think used to be a Catholic priest or something. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> And and he was starting this idea of a peace garden in Sebastopol. And so we got involved with that. We did a Germanic master plan for them. And we kind of made it like a medicine wheel. And we had them put stakes at the edge of the circle for the rising of the summer solstice and mm-hmm. all the points. And, and there was an energy pattern that was going to an old... Uh, chestnut tree. We had a chestnut blight in this country, so there aren't any chestnut trees. But there were there was one there that was just hanging on. And it would die it, it would grow to a certain point and then it would die back. You know, and so it was it became for them this this metaphor of death and rebirth and right. recreating yourself constantly. And so they wanted to recreate culture along a peace path instead of a war path. And so it all fit. And then we doused, a couple of us were dowsers, and we doused that there was this spiraling path that, or spiraling track of some sort of energy that went in and coiled around this chestnut tree. So then they made the entrance path that way. And it was just, you know, it just kept going like that, right? And then that got other jobs, and then we got... I got hooked up with uh, Master Lin Yun, who was really responsible, I think, for bringing feng shui to the West in a way that we could understand it, because he was really adapting it to our culture. Started working with him. We did a conference. Uh, we did a panel with him uh, after one of his presentations, and that got us out into the interior design world. That that was some sort of interior design conference. Anyway, it just kept you know going. Uh, that but it was 1985, uh, 86. Those were the the 85 was the nighting ceremony. You're one of us. <laughs> Get back across the pond and teach. <laughs> Go forth and spread the word. Yeah. 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 And then it's just been, and then it, you know, since then it's been this spiral that sort of each decade seems to move me off into a different territory. Okay. Now I'm focusing on this. Now it's et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah. The feng shui thing comes to the West, you know, I can. Still remember the uh, the very first book in English that I found. I think it was Stephen Skinner's book, mm-hmm. um, and you know I just soaked that up like a sponge because just so little information on it. Now, of course, you know you can't go into a bookstore and there's like shelves groaning under the weight of feng shui books. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I tell people don't buy a book uh, that was published after '96. Hmm. And why is that? Why? Because most of those people don't know what they're talking about. Hmm. They didn't study directly with a master. Or they did a weekend workshop and then called themselves a feng shui master. Mm. You know, in our traditions, the master is a term that's designated, given to you. You don't pick it yourself. Yeah. You know, and there's several. You either have a thousand consultations that were all successful, or uh, 
um, you get designated by the lineage holder of your tradition. Or you get designated by some other, you know, organization, which was my case, Feng Shui Institute International. Mm. Awarded me the title Feng Shui Master at some point. <laughs> well, traditionally, I mean, it's, it's a guild kind of title. Yes. Isn't it? You go through your journal and your apprenticeship and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what FSIA, you know, that's like a guild. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's mostly interior design. Guild, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people just calling themselves masters who don't deserve the title. So. Yeah. Well, they don't, they don't understand the tradition at all. So they don't even know, I think. You know? Yeah. They don't, they probably see people saying master and oh, that'd be a good marketing ploy or whatever. And they don't understand that, mm, no, sorry, my dear. Yeah. This is, this is a tribe. This is a lineage. You know, it's, yeah. it's an oral tradition and you really need, you can't learn this from a book. You have to study with a master and then they tell you. And it, in my case, Master Lin, uh, did not designate people as masters except for when he was, Getting ready to pass over, then he designated the person to be the holder of the lineage and continue it after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so in there, in that, in the black sect, Tibetan Tantric Buddhas, Feng Shui, there's just one master. Um, <laughs> and that's the lineage. Well, actually, it's the grand master. Uh, I suppose there could be other masters, but he never, never did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and he kept emphasizing that we're all equal. He saw us all as equals, um, kind of like the Dalai Lama approach. You know, yeah, we're, we're all simple monks, and we nobody we all know different things. It's not that we know more than the other; we know different things. Hmm. And he would encourage people to, you know, when he emphasized this point, <clears throat> I see you all as equals. Uh, don't don't go calling yourself a senior student of Master Lin. <laughs> one, of, one of my colleagues got gently slapped <laughs> one day for for you know he had it on his card and he says what's this <laughs> and he's a senior student what's that mean it's like okay we get the point you don't have to say anything else <laughs> but he would say you know you even if all you know is how to pronounce feng shui correctly instead of saying feng shui, you know, you can, that's your knowledge that you can pass on and help somebody else. Mm. And so you're, you're like, you're a master of knowing how to pronounce it. And that's, you know, claim that and that's what you share. That's a very humble approach, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was so knowledgeable mm. and probably one of the most knowledgeable piece of people I've ever met or studied with and one of the most humble. So every time I start to feel my ego <laughs> wanting to fluff me up, it's like just, okay, what would Master Lin do here? <gasps> okay, let go of that, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where are you now uh, with, with your work? You know, what's, what, what excites you? What keeps you going? Well, there's several things. I'm I'm back in the earth acupuncture world again, which I learned here at the West Coast Conference in probably 86, 87, 8, somewhere in there. There were a bunch of people here teaching that, and they have all passed now. Mm-hmm. And when the last two of them 
Well, as the last two were sort of going, they stopped coming to the conference. That was it. They stopped coming to the conference as they were getting older. just couldn't handle it anymore. And I thought, oh, gosh, there's no one else giving talks on earth acupuncture, using it to mitigate geopathic stress. And there's nobody talking about the French coils of how you work with trees to help them thrive when they're sort of feeling weak and stuff. And I think of the French coil for your listeners is what I think of is it's a copper wire that goes around the tree in a particular way. And it's basically a cosmic chi infusion. Mm-hmm. It's a booster shot to the, and it draw, it's like an antenna that draws in energy from the cosmos to feed the tree. Okay. So it's on top of what they're getting fed by with the water and the nutrients and the sunlight. Yeah. There's another component. It's this cosmic energy. Nobody was teaching this stuff. And I thought, okay, I guess it's, I guess I'd better pick up the baton and carry it. And that's the way I thought of it. And as soon as I said that, it's like I felt my past teachers who had passed on, it's almost like I felt them come into the room and hand me the baton and say, yes, Feather, we've been waiting for you to do this. Yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, I guess I've been charged. It's another knighting ceremony. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, okay. And it took about a year or two or something for that to come in fully, and then I realized I it's time to take this on. Mm. I, I'm the surviving member of that, you know, lineage or whatever, and time to take that on. Well, I think it's very important just now because there's uh, all these tree diseases around. Oh, yes. Uh, what's this one here that's particularly Sudden about? Oak Death Syndrome. Sudden Oak Death yeah, Syndrome. Yeah, SODS. Is, uh, yeah. And that actually is part of what got me back into it. Mm. That if, When that started in the Bay Area, somewhere around 2000 or 99, somewhere in there, um, and one of my best friends <clears throat> who started as a student became really good friends. She offered me her house when I was running my Geomancy Mystery School in the 90s. So I fell in love with her property through all of that, through doing all those workshops. <clears throat> and the <laughs> the sudden oak death was was creeping up the hills. The, the, tree, the oak trees were turning brown, coming up the sides of the hills towards her. This is in Marin County near the uh, San Rafael. <clears throat> and uh, and so she called me up, described that, and said, do you know, you know, I am terrified that I will lose my trees. It's why I moved here. She has these three gorgeous oaks, uh, the two black oaks and a live oak. And it's just, it's what makes that property. It's a very unusual property. It's a piece of flat land up in the hills, which is really, really rare. Because it's a little knoll that sticks out off of a, of a ridge. Anyway, but the trees really make it the special, magical, wonderful place that it is. And she said, I would just be heartbroken if I lost my trees. And so she was asking me, do you know anything to do for sudden oak death syndrome? And I said, no, but I'll be right there. Because <laughs> I didn't want to... I attached to those trees as well. Just love them. And so I showed up and I just started dowsing. Can I do anything? Yes. Okay, now what? <laughs> right? So then you go through the 20 questions and what can I do? Well, let's see. Well, let's start. Are there any energies um, that would, are beneficial to these trees coming through this property? Yes. 
oh, okay. So then I, I douse around and I find them. And they're crossing near one of the, the of the, the central of the three trees. <laughs> there, there are two of these beneficial earth energy lines of some sorts crossing right near that. And there's a little natural outcrop right there. So then I'm thinking, oh, can we make a stone circle or a something or other? No. So, no. Well, oh, can we make... And I was holding the image. I kind of douse with images and then just ask, is this right? I guess that's the architectural <laughs> background perspective or something way of seeing the world. But anyway, so I was holding this image of the standing sun circle and it was like miniaturizing it. And I'm going, Oh, are you asking for a medicine wheel? <laughs> so we put in this little, I don't know, it's like an 18 inch diameter medicine wheel or something. And so I say, yeah, would that work? And then I was thinking of what I learned from the dragon project back in 1985 on that trip that. Got me knighted as a geomancer. <laughs> and um, I was thinking back to all the things they had learned there about how when you set up a ring of stones at a place where there's energy lays in primary water and, you know, these energies that energize us and, you know, that by putting the stone circles there, they created like a container and turned the thing into like a, a energy... Uh, generator, dynamo, you know, almost like a electrical power plant or something, you know, but it was doing it all with earth energies. <clears throat> and so I knew from all of that stuff that when you put the, when you create a ring like that, <clears throat> stone circles, a medicine wheel, it contains the energy, allows them to build up, so you amplify them. And I thought, oh, would that work? Yes, the dowsing mm -hmm. set, right? So I just kept going like that. What we ended up doing Oh, and the next thing was the, um, so I turned my friend and I said, do you, so we did once the dowsing's telling me, and by the way, when I'm dowsing, I'm asking the spirit of place. Yeah, sure. Because I'm a geomancer. Yeah. I'm doing geomantic dowsing, so just in case we should say that. So that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm asking the spirit of place, you know, medicine wheel, uh, no, 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 how many stones do we need? And, uh, okay. And then I turned to my friend and say, do you have stones here? We can make a medicine wheel. Because I wasn't telling her what I was getting as I was dowsing. It was just my internal process. And then I turned to her and said, okay, it's asking for a medicine wheel. You got any stones? <laughs> and she pointed over about 15 feet away, and there was a pile of stones, river rocks, mm. just sitting there. She says, I've been collecting those rocks, and I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> for years. Mm. And I know I've been wanting to use them for something, but I wasn't sure, you know, I'm sort of, of course, I'm burst out in laughter at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and took that as an omen as a, sure. that I'm on the right track. Yeah. Right. And that seems to happen a lot for me. You know, the birds will fly over or the something will happen when, you know, I'm on the right track. And there's a little sign that, okay, keep going. <laughs> And so we did that. So then we uh, uh, picked up each stone. This is the way I do it when I do a labyrinth. If I do a rock labyrinth, I have the volunteers go over, pick up. I have them walk the labyrinth first. I have it just chalked out. And I say, okay, this is, I want you to get in tune with what it is we're doing. And know what you're doing. Okay, so they walk the labyrinth. They come out all soft and mellow and focused and in the present moment. <laughs> Great. <laughs> They're in the zone I want them to be in. Then I say, go over to that rock pile, pick up, a, just look until a rock to your eye falls on a rock. 
go and pick it up and hold it right in front of your belly button and and then just feel it and then ask it where it wants to go. And then they go over and they put it down and they go get it. That's the way I build labyrinths with the group. Yeah. <laughs> and the sweet love energy that goes into them that way. So we did that for the medicine wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, one stone was in the center and a few around it. And then we charged the whole thing up. And then I say, is there anything else we can do to help these trees? Yes. Uh, another 20 questions. <laughs> and we came up, Harold McCoy, a past president of ASD, and he's one of the people that brought Earth Energy's work really into the ASD and said it's okay. You know, he's a water dowser and an earth healer, so he was like bridging things. And so <clears throat> that, he really opened up things. He actually he asked uh, Sig Lonegren and then Sig asked me to, we ran an Earth Mysteries dowsing school in 1991 at the National Convention in Ooh. Danville. And uh, it, that was quite a, an opening. It was like, Finally, the ASD is acknowledged and GMSE exists. It's valuable. It's useful. It's part of dowsing. So <clears throat> we did that whole thing. Um, so Harold had come up with this idea also of dealing with geopathic stress in people's homes. Instead of going around and treating every little thing, he put what I call an etheric pyramid around the house to just filter out all that stuff. <clears throat> and he used quartz crystals at the four corners of the pyramid, the mm-hmm. base of the pyramid, four corners of the house or the property or something. And then he just visualized or imagined or called in a pyramid <clears throat> with its peak over the top of the house. And it was just like this wonderful thing shining there. <laughs> I, you know, and I, in each case, I, Dows for, okay, should this be purple light or violet light or rainbow light or golden light or, you know, what? And, and so visualize sort of what the pyramid, what kind of energy it is. <clears throat> it's going to filter out whatever is detrimental to the human. So we did that around the whole property. And her property is not a simple rectangle. It's, you know, on the side of a hill, so it's all these various different points, you know, like maybe... 10 or 12 points or something for the places where the property boundary bends and twists and stuff. And I'm going, do you have a map? Because this is going to be kind of hard to go around the fence and all this stuff. And I need to plant the quartz crystal at each of those little turning points to make this multi-sided cone thing. So she runs off to her office and she brings back a map. She'd been living there, I think, 15 years. She comes back with this map. And on the map, she's marked where she planted quartz crystals at all of the corners of those bins of property. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Omen number two. (laughs) We're on the right track. (laughs) And But we decided, so we used that to try to find them, and we couldn't. So then I reburied new ones. Mm. But it was just like, she's already done this. Gosh, this is so in harmony with her and the way she's stewarding this property and everything. It's, oh gosh, wonderful. So we, do, we planted the crystals and we did all that and then uh, started to create the etheric pyramid. And then it says, is there anything else we need to do to keep these trees safe and healthy? Yes. Another 20 questions. <laughs> and we and what it came to was, um, my job is just to set up the physical device with the stones and the crystals and stuff. 
and then I'm to turn it over to the landscape angel. So then that goes back to 1982 when I visited Findhorn, and before that I had been reading their books, but I got to go there, work in the garden, talk to the people, and and really got a better sense of that. So landscape angels is part of their whole worldview, that you had the landscape angels like the conductor of the symphony of all the devas, who are like the directors of the switchboard operators that bring in the cosmic energy into each species of plants. Right, so they have that whole hierarchy. Yeah, and it goes down and gets finer and finer. Yes, to yeah. elementals yeah. and all this yeah. other kind of stuff. Right, so I mostly just work with the devas of specific trees and plants, <clears throat> and then the landscape angel who is coordinating all of their work. And so when I'm doing French coils, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm setting up the physical apparatus, and then I turn it over to the landscape angel and say, "You're the ones. You keep this going." and hook this up, hook this antenna of copper wire and stuff, this coil, to the universe, and, you know, you guys take over now. And just, yeah. Right? <clears throat> so we did that, and, uh, and there was this, I get visual images, there was this amazing, like, winged, white-winged, filigree angel. It was like, it's like the angel was created out of fog, or out of mist or something. It was just very ethereal and huge, like this big umbrella over that whole part of Marin County. <clears throat> She's right near the Marin Civic Center, so it's like the center, the energetic hub of the whole county. And so the landscape angel is like the county's angel or yeah. something that is that she's that her property is like under the guardianship of or something. <clears throat> so it was amazing. And then I, the way I connect with them is I imagine they have an umbilical cord somewhere that's sort of like an anchor for that angel. And so I found that, and that was also landing in that area. I said, oh, great. So I just asked it to then, you know, take over and maintain this etheric pyramid and the energy, the beneficial energy lines being magnified by the medicine wheel and all that kind of stuff. So, so that is what got me back into I mean, this is, this is like 15 years later from the <clears throat> late 80s when I learned this, uh, and coming back to it. But it was, and then as I kept working with that, I got more and more awareness as we learned more and more about climate change that, and I was seeing it, I was seeing it in the birds and in the trees that they're challenged because the environment is changing and they need thousands of years to adapt to changes that are happening this fast and so they're getting stressed out because that's just beyond what they can do yeah you know so i got that's what pulled me back into it Mm. oh and that seems to happen every decade there's a new pull in some direction i'm sensing a need you know to go this way or that way or whatever well, also there's the sense of keeping these traditions alive and, and passing the torch on to the next generation, you know. Um, <clears throat> how well do you think that's going for us? Do you feel that's part of your duties? Do you, do you think... Um, it's it's a part of it. I would not say it's my guiding thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I probably shy away from that because I'm... Uh, part of my mission is to learn how to work without ego. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and, and every time... You know, I'm very aware of every time I'm wanting to be recognized or seen or anything. It's like, okay, that's the ego wanting to be fed. 
Okay, thank you very much for that. <laughs> but I'd like to pay attention to something else right now, yeah. you know, and uh, learn how to just be of service, you know, and let everything else just happen as a result of that. So mm-hmm. my primary thing is more, um, more like the humble monk, I'm just here to help and tell me what to do next. Yeah. You know, and, oh, as a result, I'm going to be teaching a whole bunch of people. Oh, as a result... Uh, these uh, several women in Ukiah, uh, way three hours north of San Francisco, call me up and say, would you come over and teach? We'd like to have a year-long training program in earth acupuncture and working with tree spirits and stuff. We have a lot of farmers here and uh, and a lot of um, energy workers Mm -hmm. who mostly work with humans. They say they'd like to branch out and work with the earth and with the trees. I said, Sure, but you have to set it up. Would you be willing to do that? Yes, we'd be happy to. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. I'm just, I'm here. I'm available for anybody who needs my help, um, who I think I can help. I have to Dallas for that. Can I actually help them? <clears throat> but any, I'll go anywhere that anybody is willing and able to set up a program or once the consultation or the whatever, you know. So I guess my work right now is focused on mostly teaching. So you're you're kind of, you're intuiting something. You're picking up on something <laughs> here that I have shifted more from the private consultations because it only helps one person or one family or one property at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more interested now in replicating myself, cloning myself, because who knows long how many more years or decades or minutes or whatever I have, right? And the sense of the batons being passed on, you know, and Master Lin passed on also. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm acknowledging that I'm growing into one of the elders <laughs> of these traditions and time, you know, the acceptance of that then has me going more interested in teaching. Yeah. And Teaching and, and I'm also noticing a shift there that the one-off workshop is not as interesting to me anymore. And so when they say they wanted a year-long training, it's like somebody's reading my mind or my heart. You know, this is exactly where I want to go. So that was lovely. And they did all the logistics and all the marketing and all the word of mouth and collecting the people and putting the whole thing together and they're just running it. All because all I want to do now is just show up and teach. Mm-hmm. Somebody else do all of that groundwork of, of setting it up, mm-hmm. and that is more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is stimulated by the fact that I really do feel an urgent need for more and more people to become geomancers and earth healers and tree healers and all these things that the skills that I've developed and it's time to pass them on yeah and have lots of apprentices you know all over the place yeah i agree i mean there's a a growing need for this sort of work yeah to be done i think and you know and the next thing and i uh, you may be going in the same direction i don't know but the i i want to be able i want to go figure out how to teach this as a webinar Mm-hmm. How much of it, you know, I realize a lot of it, the energy work is something, I mean, I'm just leading it there and I'm, I'm guiding them through an inner journey, guided visualization kind of thing or something. I can do that 
<laughs> through the internet. Yeah. And so a lot of the basics and the fundamental practices and the dowsing and a lot of this, uh, particularly the information dowsing, I can teach that without being there. And so where I'd like to be going is uh, to figure out a way to develop this kind of program as a apprenticeship, as a webinar, and then maybe once every three months we get together and we do field work. Sure. And then I check them out and see how they're doing and adjust what they're doing and say, oh, no, put your mind over here in this place and you'll get better dowsing results. Mm. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be interested in that. So how do they get in touch with you? How do people find you online? The, well, the best way is go to the website. and then Which is? Which is richardfeatheranderson.com, www, which you don't really need on most servers, but yeah. richardfeatheranderson.com. And there's a whole bunch of stuff up there. Yeah. There's, there's uh, a list of all the different subjects that have called to me and I've developed workshops on. So there's a seminar list there or something. <clears throat> and it, whenever somebody, you know, like the, the women in Ukiah says, we'd like you to come over, I say, go to the website, read that list, make a note of all the things that you're like, it's drawing your attention and you're going, Oh yes, I'd like to have that <laughs> and make me the list, you know, and then we create a program from that. Yeah. <clears throat> and most people, the list is way too big at first. And then I say, okay, now prioritize. And then we go from there. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's also, um, there's a whole bunch of different recordings and booklets in there. So that can give people a sense of a better sense than just the paragraph of what that subject is, and then they can know, oh, yeah, really interested in that part, and now that I've listened to this tape, not so much that, you know, so that's yeah. available. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, there's a, most of those things, the booklets are very short because I don't like to just go on and on. You know, I like to get really precise when I'm writing. So they're very concise, but they're, you know, it's like a seed where there's a lot of, <laughs> genetic material packed into a very small space. Um, and then it gets fluffed out a little bit more in the recordings because they're mostly from the mm. dowsing conferences and other conferences. So it's a little bit long, but they can get a good sense of what's, what practices I'm carrying and passing on from looking at that. There is also a section on consultations. Uh, should they need you know, private stuff. And that also will, I think there's a page in there talking about geopathic stress um, and the geomantic site planning and, you know, various things so they can get a sense of what the different practices are Yeah, and find out if that's part of their life mission or not. Well, I will you know. place a link to the website on the, the podcast page so people can get to get to you fairly easily. Yeah. So that's been really interesting, Richard. Thanks so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to <laughs> connect with people across the pond. <laughs> Richard Feather Anderson there, and that was a very interesting talk, and we could easily have gone on for another hour, I'm sure. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you have any comments about the show that you would like to share, you can email us at podcast at adventuresindowsing.com or you can join the discussion and leave a comment on particular episodes at the website adventuresindowsing.com. If you do enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to write us a good review on iTunes. It really does help, you know. So thanks for listening. Thanks to Greg Proops, the smartest man in the world. And of course, thanks to Hilary Brooks, Ian Pegler and Not For Pussies for the music. I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.
Uh, how do you want to uh, be addressed these days? Because you're more in favor of Richard than Fennel. Well, out in the world, in most of the world, I go. I've been going as Richard for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so Richard Feather is the way I introduce myself to people because I can't keep track of who knows me in the camp that knows me as Richard and who circle dancing and dowsers and so yeah I guess Richard Feather is probably the best okay